and we're off right okay this is the first um yeah the first journeys podcast for towards recovery and you're our first guest um so i'm gonna try not to be like a host or a presenter because that can get a bit you know um weird can't it we're basically just friends from um the field of addiction um separated by many years and many miles why don't you introduce yourself um david and tell us a bit about you know how you are where you are and who you are now who you were okay Oh, it's good to see you again, Hasia. Been a long yeah. time, apart from last week, touching base with you for the first yeah. time. Uh, it must be 2006 yeah. or something. So, uh, yeah, so my name's David Clark. Um, I'm in Perth, Western Australia uh, yeah. at the moment. So we're enjoying an autumn. We've just had a lovely day of 30 degrees, which is good weather. Yeah. Uh, we have a nice Mediterranean climate here. Um, some of you will know me from, from the UK. Uh, I moved here in 2008. Uh, I've had quite a journey in terms of career. I started as a, a neuroscientist for nigh on 25 years um, and then changed and became uh, an addiction recovery advocate. Uh, some of you will know that I set up and ran the Wired In initiative and the Wired Into Recovery Online uh, community. I then moved to, to Perth, as I say, I arrived here on Christmas Day 2008 to be with my new partner. Yeah. And, um, and after a few years, started working in the field of Aboriginal uh, trauma. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and then just recently, I've come back into the addiction uh, recovery field. And for my sins, I'm actually a, uh, an emeritus professor of psychology. So I used to teach yeah. students years ago. I was going to ask you what, what you did, what did you do before you went to Australia? Tell us a little bit about your background in, in addiction and neuroscience. Okay, so yeah. my neuroscience career started straight in my PhD, which was in uh, Reading. And then I was very lucky to go and work for, in Sweden for three years with a man called Arvid Carlsson in the medical school in Gothenburg, Göteborg. And Arvid went on to win the Nobel Prize in the year 2000. Uh, he's the father of dopamine research. And neuroscientists will tell you that drugs hijack brain dopamine systems, if you believe that. Yeah. But uh, what we do know is they're implicated uh, in movement and uh, Parkinson's disease is where you lose dopamine neurons. So I worked three years in Sweden, a couple of years in the States. Uh, I won a an award to come back to the UK and set up a lab, first in Reading and then in Swansea. And my research laboratory focused mainly on brain dopamine systems and in the latter years on addiction. Mm. Um, now, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, which is the big funder in the States, will tell you that um, people take drugs um, because of their dopamine system. And these drugs hijack uh, these dopamine systems and people keep looking for pleasure. Uh, and to be quite honest with you, I just got more and more disillusioned with this idea. Um, I could tell a very good story about brain dopamine and addiction, but I couldn't tell you anything about recovery yeah. and nor could any other neuroscientist. Um, some of them would say that um, we would have a drug which would cure addiction, uh, which to me was total rubbish. And uh, 
And the National Institute of Drug Abuse also promoted the idea that addiction would be solved by scientists and treatment practitioners. And given that we didn't know anything about recovery, I found that rather difficult. So I had started working, um, or I met some treatment practitioners in Swansea, where I yeah. lived, and became good friends with them. And I decided it was time I learned what addiction was really about and what recovery was really about. Okay. Uh, a number, number of them were in recovery. Yeah. So can and, I just stop you before you before yeah. you go into that? So you you started in neuroscience so you're yeah. looking at at life if you like from a lab from brain scans from a scientific perspective you're you're looking at addiction the root of addiction and gradually you're it's starting to dawn on you that we know a lot and we can we can you know kind of dazzle with the science but that's not helping people get better and no and yeah Okay. And I mean, you've got to remember as well, I wasn't even working with brain scans. I was working with laboratory rats. Okay. And laboratory rats self-administer yeah. cocaine, heroin, amphetamine. Yeah. And we know that those effects are mediated by brain dopamine systems. So that's why the focus is on those. Um, yeah. So really, it was laboratory rats. We we're extrapolating from laboratory rats to humans. And in many cases, that isn't a problem. I mean, laboratory rats have a fully functioning brain. They just don't have as well-developed cortex. Although I used to think that some of my rats were more intelligent than some of my students. <laughs> but So it's a big leap from laboratory animal to man. Okay. So you, you're, you then make that leap in a sense into, well, let's find out addiction from looking at people, talking to people and looking at treatment and that, um, and how, how, how did that get you um, talking about recovery as well? So you, what was the difference between working in the lab and then working with people? What, what was that like for you? Okay, well, so I'm thinking, um, and I, when I was working in neuroscience, I was always thinking behavior in the clinic. A yeah. lot of neuroscientists aren't thinking in, in that sort of way. I remember one of my students in Sweden once saying to me, David, it's, it's all in the synapse. Mm. Uh, he's now a very, very successful medical doctor. Yeah. Um, but to me, I was always thinking behavior. And then um, it's very reductionist, very simple. And then I went, so you've got to think of, here was this university professor going into the community and from, you know, middle-class background, living in a nice house on the Gamma Peninsula and going and meeting people whose lives had been ravaged, not just by drugs, but mm. by all the other problems in their lives. Yeah. Um, and that was quite a, a shock at one level to me, but at another level, it sort of started to build a passion inside me. I was looking at what real life was about. And this wasn't about, as some neuroscientists would tell you, people chasing reward. Yeah. No, no. I mean, I got to, to see that the drug problem was part of a much wider problem. You know, people who were homeless, they'd lost their family, their friends, they had no money. Yeah. Um, we didn't talk a lot about trauma in those days, but clearly some of those people had been abused. 
And heroin is one of the best painkillers. In fact, it's probably used more than any other drug in hospitals, although it's not called heroin. Yeah. Um, for physical pain. So for some people, it's killing psychological pain. So yeah. suddenly I began to realize that for addiction itself is part of a wider thing. Yeah, yeah. that's the first thing. It, it's not chasing reward. It's often killing pain, but it's yeah. a lot more multifaceted uh, than that. So straight away, I saw this need for a holistic approach. Mm. It wasn't all about biology. Yeah, it was as much about social and relationships and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And where did the you see thing I saw very early? Oh, sorry, go on. Where did you see this? Were you, what project were you in within? Okay, so I'm in a, I'm in a tra treatment agency called West Glamorgan Council on Drug and Alcohol Abuse at the time. Yeah, okay. It was, the primary treatment program was primarily based on 12-step yeah. uh, Minnesota model. Yeah. But it was much more multifaceted <coughs> than that. People yeah. would come into primary treatment and they might go off into harm reduction or they might go to the primary treatment program yeah. or they might go to something called Domino, which was um, development and motivation and new outlooks, which was doing gardening, computers, fitness, work, yeah. Yeah, so to bring of, people out of isolation. Yeah, yeah, okay. And, and that's when you start to encounter the treatment professionals and the clients of that of that service and started to get to know them what did you see when well tell me a little bit about um i guess you can you it's very different to what you were doing before how did you encounter recovery within that what did you you well, said i, I guess the first thing recovery? The first thing I knew about recovery was my very good friend, Keith Morgan, or as we call him, Keith the Carrot. Uh, <laughs> and Keith, Keith ran Domino. Yeah. Uh, he was a rock musician, brilliant right. rock musician, and he was in recovery. Yeah. And he, he explained to me that he'd had a serious problem uh, with alcohol. Um, just the stories of what he got up to were incredible. Yeah. And he went to rehab in, I think, in Resurken, West Wales, and eventually um, joined um, West Wakada, that's yeah. the yeah. abbreviation, um, and eventually became a practitioner. Right. And so through him and then through some others, a couple of the counsellors, Lawrence and, and Fred, who both passed away now, were in recovery as well. And when they talked about their life, it wasn't just drugs, that, that their life was damaged in many ways. Yeah. And they talked about the path they had to take, how much re repair, I guess, they had to do on yeah. their lives to get to where they were. Yeah. And they had this incredible passion. Mm. That's one of the things which most engaged me I guess is there were these people who had been through so much yeah and then were determined to help people and from the outcomes I could see in the way of talking to the clients they were doing something this wasn't what I later saw in other treatment services yeah and read about this was it seemed to be working with people um so that was my first um, touching of recovery was with practitioners who were in recovery themselves. Right. So 
obviously when I first started talking to clients and I'd be talking to some who were literally just there or maybe they'd been a few weeks in Domino and we were doing gardening together or I would catch them after they'd been um, in their counselling session or something, they would have been much, you know, they're on the beginning of their journey. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of those people I've actually now known 20 years of yeah, her recovery, yeah. she's 20 yeah. years in recovery and we'll talk about her yeah. later. She taught me a lot. So I was getting it from yeah. both sides, the practitioners, yeah. the clients. So I was getting to see what recovery was about, but I was also starting to see the elements of what treatment was. Right. Whereas yeah. I'd never, you know, when you're a neuroscientist, you know, you, yeah. you're writing these sentences. If we do this, then we have the potential. If we depotentiate right. the dopamine, the glutamate input onto the dopamine neuron, and maybe we could get rid of addiction. Right. So, but on the other hand, given that that pathway is involved in normal behavior, in normal constellatory behavior, we could be affecting that as well. Right. Okay. But a lot of people ignored that. So it, you, you're you're now exposed to these different worlds. You're yeah. involved in neuroscience. You're looking at treatment, and you're also encountering people in recovery and hearing their experiences. What effect did that have on you? Did you did you assimilate that all together? Did you choose one over the other? Um, I mean, I, I know a bit about you, so I know that at some point you leave neuroscience um, and you go off in a different direction. But but why did you become disillusioned with that? Was it because of that dis, that kind of reductionist approach, that um, purely scientific synaptic sort of approach? Did you become disillusioned and, and, and why? Yeah, no, there were several, several reasons. Um, the, the neuroscience world is any academic world. Very few people get research grants to yeah. do their work, particularly yeah. when you're working in an expensive field like neuroscience. So yeah. very competitive. And I was very fortunate in doing extremely well in terms of research Sounds like grants. you didn't do too bad. You were the Nobel laureate and all the rest of no, it no 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 my boss in sweden was the nobel oh, laureate yeah yeah but yeah 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 yeah, yeah. But no, but, but I, no i had I, I had won an award a science research council personal award the only one in biological sciences to win yeah to, uh, in the uk to come back to the uk then i won a welcome trust university award which allowed me so that was 10 years of not having to be a normal lecturer just training people in my research laboratory and I set up a yeah. PhD program. So I actually, and I think I was, I was the young psychopharmacologist of the year in 1987 at the age of 33 or something. Yeah, yeah. You know, so we were doing well. Our lab was leading, was world leaders in what we were doing. I had yeah. some very talented people working with me. Um, but the rate at which one could work, the experiments you were doing took a long time. So advances mm. were slow. Yeah. I yeah. also, and we won't go into this too much here, but I saw a fair amount of scientific fraud in, in neuroscience, which is very okay. disillusioning. Yeah. But yeah. that occurs yeah. everywhere, as we, yeah. we know yeah. with governments okay. and, and things. Yeah. Um, but I think most of all, it was the fact that I loved, I wanted to help people. Yeah, you know, I went into this. I, when I was doing my degree, 
I either wanted to become a clinical psychologist or a neuroscientist. And I got so excited doing experiments in neuroscience as an undergrad, I went that direction. Yeah. And yeah. I felt I now needed to help people. And when I went down to that agency, it didn't take me long to decide it's time to stop. And in fact, what happened is I got awarded my professorship. I, around the time, I, I'd already started wide in then, but I was doing now free jobs. I was running a research lab. By now I was teaching as well. Plus I was trying to run wide in. Okay. And um, I got my professorship. I was going to, to, to have the, um, you have a, a talk and then an inaugural dinner. And I got called out to invited to go to Sweden to celebrate my boss's big prize. Yeah. So we canceled my inaugural and I came back in the beginning of 2001 and did it and launched Daily Dose then. Okay. And I made the announcement that I was closing the lab. Okay. And going so you made a choice. I, yeah. I made a choice. And by then I knew what I wanted to do. I, I knew wh what I would like to do, but I still was formulating what Wired In would be about. Yeah. So then around... Us, no, go on, go on, sorry, sorry. Go on. I was going to say, tell us a little, you mentioned Daily Dose and Wired In. Um, in a minute, tell, tell us a bit about those um, so that we just get a flavour for what they are, because I know what they are, but um, we're sort of reminiscing here because this is a world that has passed and we've moved into yes. a different era. But I think it's important to lay this kind of foundational understanding of where you're from and what you did. Um, but so, sorry to have interrupted you and cut across you a bit there, but tell us a little bit about Daily Dose and Wired In. What, what just, you know, a few sentences, okay. what, what yeah, they yeah, were. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so what had happened, I think in the, maybe 1999. So we're talking over 20 years ago, and it's a good yeah. that you bring up that point yeah. again, Hussie. Yeah. And I think, at the same time, if I don't describe this transition, this is a very unusual journey. That, yeah, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Not many of us have taken it. So it's good to give a, get a feel and see how someone, remember, I was very naive and trusting at that time as well. Everything yeah, yeah. was new to me in this field. Yeah. So it's good to, to, to look at that. So I had been approached by the Welsh Development Agency, which was a sort of economic organization getting money out of Europe um, to develop an education resource about drugs mm. uh, because they saw that drugs was ravaging communities in Wales and South Wales mm. in particular in yeah. the valleys and the cities. Yeah. Um, and I talked to them about it. They gave me a little bit of funding um, and I came up with uh, the, the acronym WIRED, um, which was the initial name of WIRED in, it was WIRED. Yeah. Uh, Web-based information resource on drugs. That's what WIRED stands for. And of course, alcohol is a drug. Yeah. And yeah. I then formulated, and so we got funding and I met a chap called Ash Whitney, who uh, has been building my websites for 20 years. Yeah. Ash lives in um, uh, Kilbrew, near Neath in South Wales. Uh, we got together and have got on like a house on fire for 20 years. Yeah. And we thought that the best way of getting about this is a lot of good stuff out there. Yeah. We thought, let's start with something very simple, a news portal. Right. Which got stuff, the professional stuff, some of the stuff from the newspaper, 
um, you know, all sorts of range of material and put it up every day. And I also um, employed a technician who worked with a very smart young man called Jim Young, taught yeah. him and the sorts of things I was interested in that we needed. Yeah. And he started to trawl each day. Yeah. And we'd put up a list of links. So articles, that. information from around the world on drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember, I remember getting it. Yeah. I remember yeah. reading Daily Dose. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in fact, just down the road is a very good friend of mine, 43 years in recovery. And Mike started looking at it in late 2001, and, and we've been communicating about it ever since. Yeah. And now he lives down. In fact, he's the one who suggested we come and live in the area that I now live. Okay. Um, so Daily Dose has had yeah. an impact in my yeah. life. But, um, so that's what we did initially. And then at the weekend, I would choose the specialties, you know, the really good ones. Yeah, yeah. And, and then from there, Ash and I built, I think the first wired in website was called substancemisuse.net. Okay. Um, which had section, we then split up to sections, practitioners, family, uh, and users. I think there were three, plus a fourth section for Wales, because by then I would had won a tender for the National Evaluation of the Drug and Alcohol Treatment Fund. So I was getting to see a lot of yeah. projects and we were writing profiles. So we had a section of Wales that, uh, where these profiles uh, went. So yeah. very early on, I decided that, and this really got drummed home to be doing this evaluation, we needed to get out there what was good practice because yeah. I was seeing a lot of bad practice and over the, the coming years, uh, not just in Wales, but around the UK and reading and, you know, involved mm. in the, seeing the strategy and everything. Um, we needed to get good practice out there. Yeah. So that was really all around daily dose, but that was just one component of what Wired was about, but it was yeah. one that was simple. I got a very small amount of money and I could pay Jim to do that and pay Ash yeah. to build the yeah. website. Okay. Uh, so tell us a bit about um, the research you did. Um, so the evaluation and, and where that led. Okay, well, I'll start with, I'll, I'll start, let's say, I'll start with the national evaluation and, and I won't spend very long on it, but yeah. I, and I'll start with that because that's where the negatives are. And I like okay. to get the negatives out, out of the, uh, of, of yeah. the way. I mean, the, 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 the national evaluation, I saw some great projects, so there's no yeah. doubt about it, and some really good people, some of them I'm still yeah. in contact with. And I remember one about um, in North Wales, a, a, a midwife project, right. where they decided that there was working across the organisations, which, of course, what the strategy was built on was all yeah. these organisations in health, social, criminal justice working together. Yeah. They weren't working together. And what was happening was children were being removed from mothers. Okay. Continually, child would be born, etc. But nobody knew why they were doing that because no one knew anything about it. And there was good practice out there, but it hadn't got to very many places. Yeah. They hired a, a, a midwife and a midwife project and the whole thing changed. 
Okay. She educated the whole of North Wales. It was amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And what happened is children were not removed as much and the mothers were doing well. Right. So I saw projects like that, which were just fantastic. On the other hand, overall, what I saw was uh, a, a program of activities, which was the same in England and, and, and in Scotland, which wasn't working very well. Mm. The UK strategy, um, which was based on, you know, in, in the right way, it should be multidisciplinary working, all the organizations working yeah. together, extremely difficult to do. So there was another reason why it was so important that the wide in disseminate yeah. good practice. Um, but I was very disillusioned with um, rolling out of the methadone program in the way it was rolled out. Yeah. Now, yeah. straight away, I want to say that I am not against methadone per se. Mm. Uh, but the yeah, way. Play. Sorry? It's got a role to play, hasn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But what I saw was a rolling out of something with people getting little other support than their, than their methadone. Yeah. Um, and maybe 20 minutes every two weeks where you would discuss the drug testing and whether you've used whatever, no other sort of psychosocial yeah. support. Expectations for recovery were very low. Yeah. Um, a lot of practitioners knew very little about addiction and nothing about recovery. Yeah. Um, if money was going to be cut somewhere, it would be training money. Um, yeah. I knew a, a friend who was on a drug treatment testing order when that testing order ended or when the funding to the organization ended, he was set adrift. Yeah. Um, I had two kids come in to see me in my <coughs> university office, um, had been down their local treatment agency. They wanted to go on methadone because they wanted to get their lives in order. He was offered it because he was had a criminal offence and she was told she didn't have a criminal offence, she couldn't have it. Yeah. Yeah. So all of those, you know yeah. these sort and, of things. And it's one of the, I guess, one of the blessings and the curses of being around for a long time. You know, I, I remember um, the first Orange Book guidance that came out in 97 that started to bring these things together. You know, let's do, uh, the, let's join up the clinical and the psychosocial. Um, elements and then you had you know every 10 years that's been updated so in 2007 in 2017 and in between you know there was the prison one you know working with adults in a, in, in a criminal justice setting in, in a prison setting um, and each time you know trying to bring these elements together and th there's an element of you know kind of trying to get policy and practice and research to align but increasingly, um, like you say, that the, the the system, the money poured in, and and often the organisations kind of game the system for more money. And you know, we saw some organisations grow and flourish, and others um, decline and and go out of business, as it were. You know, some good charities. But what what seemed to be missing at the time was the element of experience coming in. So the user experience, and then when that did come in, that was increasingly people in treatment um, being organized and marshaled as service user voices of some sort or another. But what you're talking about as well is beyond that, people in recovery, people outside of treatment, people trying to get on with their lives, 
Um, and the, I'm looking at the time. I want to make time for some of your recovery stories because this seems to me to be going in a direction um, where increasingly your focus is sharpening on those mm. that are um, beginning to recover and moving on from addiction and from treatment um, and from the system, if you like, and moving on into something else. <clears throat> and, that, and, and you started to chart that, is that right? With why yeah, you... I mean, I like that idea of you talking about sharpening. Let, let me, yeah. I'm just gonna read you something. Yeah. Um, because, you know, there's all of this stuff. I mean, I read and I read all the time. So I was yeah. reading various books about methadone and everything. And I yeah. was excited when I read that because yeah. I'm only working with a certain amount of information I have. Then yeah. as the, I see more of the picture, I start to see that this yeah. is not working in the way that it should. Yeah. But when yeah. you first come in, you don't understand because you don't understand all yeah, the elements. Yeah. So yeah. I'm learning more and more, and, and I'm listening to people now. I just wanted to read you. This is something from this uh, lady, Natalie. Yeah. Uh, and Natalie, um, I'll read this, and then I'll explain yeah. what she said not, to me. Natalie's not her real name, is it? I know you, no, you said that to no. me before, but I'll just yes, reiterate yes, yeah, that. Yeah, but, the but she wishes to remain anonymous. So, Right. I was still using heroin when I first attended the agency treatment agency. Yeah. There were about 15 other treatment agency clients in my first group session, one of whom was an ex-heroin user who had been clean for about 16 years. She came over to talk to me and I was in awe. She had done exactly what I was doing and she'd gotten through it. It was a light bulb moment. Mm. From that moment on, I didn't feel so alone. For the first time, I was with a group of people who understood me and my addiction, and I understood and related to them with what they were saying. You have to realize my state of thinking prior to that first group meeting in the treatment agency. Once I had become addicted to heroin, I did not see there was any alternative to the life I was living. I didn't know anyone who had overcome heroin addiction. I had never heard of anyone who had done so. I could find no information on the internet on how to give up using the drug. Mm. That was it. I had to carry on doing what I was doing mm. because this was then all would well up into it. So if you, you're using heroin and then you stop using and then these emotions are coming back out again, yeah. what's the best way to kill all those emotions? The yeah. shame, the anger, the beat yourself up, you take more yeah. heroin. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and so, so, so Natalie said to me, she said, you know what, if you want to help people get over addiction, yeah. can you just start telling stories? Yeah. She said, because I couldn't find any. I didn't know. I didn't know where to go, yeah. what to follow, yeah. what to do. I didn't even know if it was possible. Yeah. yeah. So I looked at her and I said, can we tell your story? And she said, of course you can. So... Becky, who was working with me, got together with Natalie, mm. and we've written various versions of that story. Mm. Um, when I, in 2013, when I set up the Recovery Stories website, it was there. She was by then 13 years in recovery. Right. Seven years later, I've just published her updated story as well, discovered it was actually a trauma story, 
the most amazing story you could you could read yeah. Yeah. 20 years in recovery and the son that she was trying to bring up while she was on heroin does not use drugs or alcohol right so she's broken that cycle of addiction yeah yeah that um, that just i knew where i was going yeah yeah so that that launched you into um a different world though those those meeting those people uh, experiencing hearing their stories experiencing something of their journey um took you further into the world of actually I, I need to record these i need to find a way to put these out there i mean i know from my own experience you know you know that i'm someone in recovery from addiction as well and and i know the power of stories you know often um you know I, th this podcast is is part of something that, that that I started in the UK in 2012 with with a group of uh, friends called Towards Recovery and actually we had a simple purpose we, we are a small insignificant organization um, but our, our key aim is to make recovery visible because mm -hmm. when um, in addiction you know even you know things like I'm not against Alcoholics Anonymous but there's an element of anonymity in um, even in trying to get help, you know, and, and that to me um, can sometimes feed into the stigma and the shame. And actually, you know, increasingly, as I've moved along this recovery journey, um, I've realized that it is about trauma. Um, you know, when I look back at my life, it's also about not just trauma causing addiction but trauma causing a dislocation of me from myself and yes, so absolutely. then the 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 drugs and all all the other stuff that came after that is a searching to reconnect to myself somehow and you just end up kind of even more lost than ever um but it, it's it then it, it, if you I guess what I found is the more we go down the road of the science, we look for a diagnosis. So we look for what's wrong with us. You know, what's wrong with you? Why can't you be like your sister or your brother or your friend? Um, rather than taking into account what happened to us and how that affected us. And when we start to talk about what happened to us and get our stories out there, actually we start to to give other people permission to to look at their own life and to look at their own stories and they realize it's not that there's something wrong with me it's just that things happen to me and i and, and those things have caused me to react in a certain way someone else may not react in that way um you know i had two sisters i've got two sisters who are as far away from addiction as could be but they went through the same traumas um but they they dealt with it in a different way and so I guess you're, as you begin to get exposed to this, um, wired in, developed and turned into yeah. a, a place of, to, to deposit those stories and for people to speak. Yeah, I'm just picking you up. So I'm, I'm trying to find something on my computer here. Yeah. Because it's, I'm, I'm really pleased that you mentioned um, uh, what you did. Um, I set up a website called Sharing Culture, which is about the healing of intergenerational trauma. And at the top of it is a quote from a lady, an Aboriginal lady called Dr. Carly Atkinson, who's 
chief exec of Weali program, healing programs. Yeah. And the quote is, how many times have you heard, what is wrong with that person? Yeah. There is nothing wrong with that person. Things are happening or have happened to that person. Yeah. It's exactly what you said. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's what it's about. And, and drugs and alcohol serve a function for a lot of people. And that's not chasing reward all the time. Yeah. It's killing yeah. pain. Yeah. And Gabor Mate, I mean, that yeah, talks yeah. about it, childhood yeah, trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bessel van der Kolk, who the leading one of the leading experts on, on trauma. Um, I've heard him on one clip um, say that uh, he's, all the heroin addicts he's met were abused as children. Now, admittedly, that might not be the case in the, in, in the, in the whole world because he would be seeing people who are traumatized come, yeah, coming yeah. to him. Um, but still... Um, but people, trauma, comes, trauma comes in many forms, you know. Of course uh, it does. And, and the, um, you know, the, the, the effect of that on people is long-term. You know, I, I read the, the studies um, by Anders and Felitti uh, in the 80s uh, about, oh. you know, they, they dropped their questions into, uh, you know, a mainstream population. This was mainly white, mainly middle-class, mainly co college-educated people with insurance and, and he dropped in 10 questions uh, that became, you know, the aces. Um, yeah, yeah. There. And this was, you know, I think it was one in three or one in 25% uh, or 30% of people had, um, I think it was three or more traumas within their, within their background, you know, between zero and 18 years old. And this wasn't some poor marginalized group somewhere you know in in the corner of society this was mainstream society and so when we when we look at you know demographics where people maybe suffer disproportionately in terms of poverty and hardship um you know the potential you can see that the potential for trauma might be expanded a bit because of the circumstances but trauma is affecting us all and, and when we start to talk about addicts you know as some special breed um, it, it suddenly it, it demonizes people, it turns them into them, it turns them into other, and it means we don't have to be tarred with that brush, if you like. But really, you know, there is no, I think it was, um, I can't remember who said it, but it, it, there is no them and us, it's just us, you know. Yes. And, and actually, when we deal with people, we, we're dealing with ourselves. And, and actually, I take some comfort in knowing that. I had um, my, my addiction and my behavior, criminality, whatever you want to call it, came about as a result of some of that um, trauma. I think there was always an element of also pleasure seeking within there. You know, um, sometimes that pleasure seeking might just be the, the, the stopping of pain. But I also believe that because there wasn't something inherently wrong with me, um, I could get back onto a different path. I could make changes in my life. Mm. So it, it wasn't because I was genetically disabled in some way. It yeah, was no, because, you know, I, I could use my choice and, and get back on track. And I really love that. And I, I think an added benefit is that my past and that trauma has allowed me to work in the field. And, and, and it's my past has become my future you know um because mm. i wouldn't i wouldn't change that because it's 
it's given me the life I've got now. You know, um, it's I've met you because I, you know, I, I left London. I, I I work in the field of addiction, and and at some point I came across you, um, mm. and you know that and that's happened so many times with so many people that I really, um, yeah, I I kind of think the more we get our stories out there, the more other people look at them and think just like Natalie did in that treatment situation mm. that you read out, you know, they're doing what I'm trying to do. And maybe they're a little bit further on down that same path, or maybe they're a little bit further back on that track. So I can either aspire to move forward or I can help someone who's moving towards recovery as well. And so tell me a little bit we while we've got a little bit of time we're we're about um i put a timer on earlier so that we could try and keep the time we're about 38 minutes in i put it on a couple of minutes late um but let's leave room for you to talk a little bit about um a bit more about the recovery stories um not just wired in but you've re-released a book of recovery stories which i'm in the process of reading at the moment and we'd like to plug it because it's it's really cheap you can get it cheaply online and so we we but it's full of you know real people's stories uh, and their recovery journeys and i think it's got something in there about your own journey as well yeah. which yeah i was reading Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. But quickly, let me just say one yeah. thing about the Feliti Adverse yeah. Child Experiences work. One of the most stunning things that I've heard is on one of his little films, yeah. when he emphasises that newspapers and people go nuts when there's a, someone shows a 30% greater chance of cancer with something, yeah. you know, yeah. certain things. They found that people with six or more adverse child experiences, the, the increased likelihood of becoming an intravenous drug user is 5,000%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the same with suicide, attempting suicide. Yeah. So yeah. let's get things into perspective. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and, and one other thing about the stories before I describe the, the recovery stories, I remember that um, in the latter time of Wired Into Recovery in early days of recovery stories, uh, an Australian girl, Maddie, who had an alcohol problem, uh, wrote and <coughs> said that she used to print out the stories and carry them in her back pocket. And she would say to herself, if a heroin person with a heroin addiction can get over it, she should be able to. Okay. And those stories followed her everywhere. So she physically uh, deeply moving uh, yeah. blog, and I must must dig it out. But yeah. uh, no, so so along my journey, I've obviously uh, met a lot of people. Yeah, uh, we've done a lot of stories. I know at Burton Addiction Centre, for example, yeah. my daughter wrote nineteen stories from interviews. A Neen Project yeah. we did a whole booklet of stories and an audio thing. But these are people that um, I've met on my journey, and then. Uh, around 2013, after Wired Into Recovery closed down, and we'll come back to that another time, um, I thought that I wanted to build a new website yeah. called Recovery Stories, had the same philosophy about empowering people uh, through hope, understanding, and gaining a sense of belonging. Yeah. Um, I thought I would also put them into a book with some articles as well, but as it turned out, I focused on just the website. 
And these stories are, as I say, all people I've met on, on my journey. Some of them wrote them themselves. Some of them yeah. are treatment practitioners. Others have gone off. But they're not um, people who have overcome addiction uh, without treatment and disappeared. These are okay. people I've met in, a, yeah. in this world. Yeah. Um, mostly UK people. And the stories are in depth. Yeah. Uh, so after 13, uh, so, so, sorry, 2013, either they wrote them or I interviewed them yeah. and put them together. Seven years on, when I've been working in Aborig with Aboriginal people for a number of years, yeah. I'm really missing the recovery stories and um, yeah. the addiction recovery field. And I'm also, though we'd had very little COVID here in Western Australia, we've been yeah. very lucky thanks to our state government. Yeah. Um, I'm watching what's going on. I'm in the, in the UK, obviously, because of my children and grandchildren yeah. are there. And I'm thinking, and having been disillusioned with society, Western culture society for a while and governments, yeah. I thought the world has to change. Yeah, And it isn't going to come from politicians, it's going to come from grassroots, and it's going to take a lot. And all those people who um, know something which can help this need to get that down, so it can be passed on to younger people. Yeah. And I remember only recently seeing that the great educationist, Ken Robinson, yeah. did the same thing and I didn't realise when I watched his last film that he passed away soon yeah. afterwards yeah. one yeah. of the most inspirational men yeah. uh, and I decided that I had to get down all that I'd learned during these yeah. years and I needed to get those voices going again so I contacted the people who were on the Recovery Stories website and all but one said yes uh, they either wrote their own story or their own update or some didn't want to update. Um, one since who's very well known in the field um, has, has said to me, I wish I'd done it now, but I was very busy at the time. Yeah. Um, others updated very long or I worked on them on numerous calls on Skype and things. And three of those stories turn out to be huge trauma stories, yeah. which wasn't really anywhere near as apparent at the third. Uh, people are doing well yeah um, and I thought well if I'm doing this then I've obviously got to write a chapter on the basis and using quotes the factors that facilitate recovery as shown yeah. by these stories and I should write my journey you know I'm yeah. actually writing a much more detailed book about that journey the people I've met their lives etc um, and I have just I just published a book um, as an ebook, um, my yeah. Aboriginal work, and I thought, well, I can get it out quickly this way. Yeah. I know everyone can't access it, but also it's tougher to get a, a publisher when it's a one-off. If I've got a series of books, much more interested, yeah. much more likely to to publish. Let's get this out there. Um, so it went out a couple of weeks ago. I think four pound ninety nine. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's not. I think it's 170,000 words, so it's twice the size of a normal book. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's quite a, a chunky read. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> at least one of one of the uh, uh, storytellers, I'll call them, had such an amazing story and was so good at telling that story. I just kept writing. I wasn't going to yeah. say, "Brad, that's enough." Yeah, yeah. Um, 
what we'll do is when, when we get this um, podcast out there, we'll make sure that links to recovery stories and links to the book go on there somehow. I, I don't know how to do it, but we, we can find people yeah, yeah. that do. And, uh, yeah. um, and I'm sure what you'll find is some of those people will be happy to talk to you as well. Yeah, I know yeah. my friend Mike down the road, 43 years, as Bill White would call him, an old timer, 43 yeah. years of recovery. Yeah. Uh, he'll be happy to talk to you. Yeah. Um, but, well, we'd um, we'd love to do um, we'd love to do an ongoing series. I've I've got a list of people. Um, list is far too long. Um, <laughs> and and I'm and there's people that are not on there that you know that I'm thinking of while we're talking. And but we want this um, journeys podcast to really be about people's journeys. You know, we hmm. we want to just talk to people, find out what they're doing, where they are, where they're, you know, what, what they hope for um, and where they've come from. You know, when, when I look at my own journey and when I look at the people of the you know, journeys of the people around me, it, it's rich with, you know, trauma, with anxiety, with joy, with difficulty, you know, they're interesting journeys. And ultimately, you know, I, I run a, a little recovery organization and there's probably, 10 or 15 of us that regularly get together in recovery um you know and we, we've got all of society is represented there you know we've got business people and we've got people that are struggling to establish themselves in their first home after treatment we've got people who are you know up and down still battling their demons and trying to find a way through and they come when they can and you know we we're not um we're not advocates of any particular approach. What we say to people is find a way to initiate recovery, find a way to sustain it. Let us walk alongside you. Um, let us help you find a way to, um, you know, find your tribe, find your community. Um, because, you know, actually what, what we find is people in recovery are the opposite to the mainstream narrative around addiction, which is all about risk and stigma and shame and keep that person at arm's length. You know, recovery really is about um, seeing that person with a rich life experience who's got, uh, who can benefit the community, who's got, who's an asset, who's someone um, who's been through stuff. You know, if someone has been through deep waters and has come out the other side you want that person around because there's a there's an element of uh, you know they're a survivor and they they know what it's like to go through deep waters and we will all go through deep waters at some stage and mm. you need someone who's been through it I, I remember reading years ago in a completely different context about microsoft they were hiring lots of bright people and someone at Microsoft said, we need to hire some people that have been through difficulties. You know, they've been through buyouts, they've been made redundant, they've, they've seen adversity and they've come out the other side because we don't just want young, bright, super duper naive employees. Mm. Yeah, we want absolutely. people who have got a few scars, who know how to, who know how to, um, mix it up a little bit in terms of some resilience. And well, I mean, look at it. Yeah, and look at it this way. Some of my heroes have always been mountaineers and the things they've done to get off the mountain when they were, you know, yeah. 
yeah. touches the void, for example, and like, yeah. crawls our broken legs. They're yeah. heroes to us. So yeah, why yeah. can't these people yeah. be, be heroes? Yeah. Now, the only way to me, I mean, we did a lot of research on prejudice as well. Yeah. And what we found in the early days is people were just as prejudiced against a heroin, a recovering heroin addict than a heroin addict. Right. It's very different. When I say people, this this study was was students who would have thought yeah. would have been more open minded, but they weren't. Yeah. Um, but um, you know, we need to be celebrating the fact that people have have overcome this. And yeah, the yeah. only way, well, not the only way, but one major way is to hear from them. When yeah. I started to hear what people had been through, and then just these little nuances, like people all the emotions came flooding back when they were off the drug. Yeah. And they had to learn new ways to deal with that. Or kids who were taking drugs at 12 years of age, who their brain was still developing. They didn't yeah. know how to deal with emotion. I mean, Brad Mia Phillips describes yeah. this beautifully. Yeah. You know, he was doing solvents at some ridiculously young age. He yeah. never learned human interactions he never learned what emotions were about yeah because yeah. drugs were always there yeah and for some kids it's not the drugs it's the fact that they're being abused or whatever yeah it's so, escaped to a better place isn't it you know what yeah. yeah so we need to understand where these people come from and one way we can understand is listen to their voices yeah and yeah. and to me you know storytelling versus you know my old statistical stuff in yeah. neuroscience or even in the complicated stats that i did with human work yeah nah. yeah the stories are what to me impact and yeah. um yeah. you know and, and to see what someone has been through and then to see them wanting to share that and helping other people yeah which of course strengthens their recovery as you know but at the same time they don't have to do that yeah and yet they do yeah um so when you see all of that and you've got my psychological makeup yeah you, you, you're completely right yeah you become passionate there's no other way i mean i remember an old friend because i was brought up in australia and then came back 40 years later and met my old schoolmates one of them said we always knew you would be like this and I said, okay. I can't see how you could work that out because yeah. you did not know me as a kid. I wanted to be a sports commentator. Right. <laughs> uh, but when you see human, the bravery and the courage that I've seen and you've seen. Yeah, yeah. Um, you want to and, talk about it. You want to record it. Yeah. You and, be in it. and, you know, I love story. I love my crime novels. I love good films. I would love to be a filmmaker. Yeah. But that's about story. Yeah. Well, I was going to say the sports broadcasting is is about, you know, describing what's in front of you. And actually, sport is um, a heroic pastime, you know. Yeah, I haven't uh, thought about that. That's a good, good point. It's, you know, Maybe can... I'm just always was going to be a storyteller. Yeah. And stories, you know, when I describe towards recovery often as a small or insignificant organisation, what I mean is, we're not like the big boys the big boys yeah. you know the, the big organization can say we help ten thousand people a day you know because they're so big and and all the rest of it um and yes there are lots of stories within what they do but they focus on the statistics because the statistics give them funding you know they can say yeah. to government we do x y and z whereas all we've got is stories 
you know all we've got is our um is our journey is our story of our own individual story and our collective stories and i think those stories do have power uh, you know i listened to um listened to a podcast recently um from jordan peterson and he was talking about stories and games and we as a society it just really made me think for a bit as a society we spend a lot of money telling stories so when you look at the film industry and you know whether that's in hollywood or bollywood or anywhere films are stories mm, when we look at the, the gaming industry um games are essentially people moving through a storyline um, or mm. people facing adversity and so there is something about us living and reliving and telling and retelling those stories and and actually stories are powerful you know we, we've talked before when we had our little chat on saturday I, I told you about the guy that just sat with six or seven people in recovery while he was still in active addiction and dipping in and out of treatment and at the end of just one evening sitting with a few people in recovery he turned to me and said how do i get what they've got and i said mm -hmm. to him, i don't know what are you prepared to do and six months on that guy changed his life he, he made some decisions to move out of the area and get some help and several years on from that conversation now he's he's got a flat he's in a relationship he's got a job he made changes but it started just by sitting in a group not even talking just listening to people in recovery chatting in a cafe context and that gave him the spark to change his life and so we know our stories have power um you know we we know that um recovery is contagious we just need to find ways to put people in recovery together and to get their stories out there and if we do mm -hmm. that we know that someone somewhere will hear it and it will have an impact on them you know like, like the woman you mentioned who would actually print it off and put it in her back pocket yeah and carry it around with her almost as a talisman of some sort there's a very um very well known american native indian um who's worked in psychiatry he was actually the youngest um, medical uh, person in in at stanford university to start a medical degree he's 14 years old and that's lewis yeah. mel madrona and right. he's written a book about narrative um, and stories and the impact in psychiatry. There's yeah. a whole thing yeah. on that. And I've just pulled up here an art, a blog I've written from his book where he says, stories help us develop empathy to see the world through someone else's eyes. Yeah. Story, sorry, the ringing was that my friend Adam, who's in the book, yeah, uh, just left quarantine and is approaching Sydney from the Northern Territory. Oh, right. Wow. Now he's almost home. Yeah. I'm so excited. Anyway, stories give cognitive and emotional significance to experience. Stories enhance our creativity and help us beyond the here and now. Wow. Stories wow. keep us connected in social networks which build and shape our brain. And stories unlock the mysteries of psychophysical suffering that declar declarative facts cannot reveal. Textbooks don't do the, have the same yeah. impact. What's that guy's name? What's that guy's name? Lewis 
L-E-W-I-S, Mel, M for Michael, E-H-L, dash, M-A-D-R-O-N-A, -A, Lewis Mel Madrona. And his book is called Healing the Mind Through the Power of Story, The Promise of Narrative Psychiatry. Healing the He's Mind Through Narrative Story. No, Healing the Mind Through the Power of Story. Wonderful. From Colin, The Promise of Narrative Psychiatry. And if you look at um, if you look at my front page of the blogs, he's down near the bottom of the first okay. one. Yeah, um, fascinating uh, fella, um, brilliant man, totally brilliant okay. man. So there are people, you know, who who are who are pushing it, but we really haven't done it enough in in the no, field. No. In our field. Well, I remember Bill White saying, "We we can fill libraries with what we know about addiction, but we could barely fill." <laughs> We could barely fill a shelf um, on a bookshelf with what we know about recovery. Um, and we have we used to have journals of addiction, but there was no journal of recovery. Yeah, yeah. That was and, his other statement. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I think there is, obviously things have developed, things have improved over the years. Um, but in many ways, you know, the, the pandemic, uh, certainly we've seen the, um, the soft parts of the treatment system close and so it, over here in the UK the bits that that kind of carried on through the pandemic were the clinical dispensing elements um, the the gaps between dispensing got longer so people were shifted off of you know kind of daily um, consumption uh, daily sort of consumption of meds uh, of methadone and put on weekly or fortnightly or monthly. Um, so they they were getting, instead of getting a prescription every day, they were getting a prescription every week or every two weeks or every month. Um, and so people, if you're on, you know, 70 mils of methadone and you're getting a week of that at a time or, you know, up to a month of that at a time, you know, you're walking off with a litre and a half of methadone at some stage. <sighs> Um, you know, so we've, we and, and we've seen the psychosocial elements of that um, diminish because, you know, services have not been able to talk to people because of the risk of close contact. Um, you know, the homeless have been scooped up and put into hotels and um, hostels and, you know, kind of off the streets. But a lot of the human interactive elements of treatment have have ceased really they're, they're beginning to sort of come out of hibernation now but what we've seen from a recovery perspective is con connection has continued in whatever way it can and usually that's meant online um, but we've also seen some projects you know do, doing amazing things you know I'm, I'm involved with a project in Portsmouth in the UK and they've been doing a lot of walks and talks with people um, and they've been doing a lot of social distance meetings um, just trying and I think this is this is the people in recovery bit um, because often we don't see that but there is some strength there in recovery um, we're coming to the end of our time and I'm you can tell I don't know how to do a podcast because I'm waffling on a bit but um, tell me a little bit before we go just give me a flavor of what you're up to at the moment um, so that we can we can just capture that and then we, we can hit the pause button and decide what we're going to do after that. 
Okay, uh, well, I'm continuing because I've um, written a book and had this website based on a, a story which is tied up. It's about Aboriginal child artists um, yeah. in the 1940s, but it's very much related to my work on healing of intergenerational trauma. So I'm maintaining that website. I blog a couple of blog posts a week. Um, yeah. And uh, I go and give periodic talks and meet with my collaborator. So that's one aspect of what I'm doing. But basically, yeah. I'm trying to come back into, I'd say trying, I'm coming back into addiction recovery field by <clears throat> creating a lot of new content. And also, I have a lot of content that was on, uh, there's been archived on, on Wide Into Recovery yeah. on my other websites. So yeah. Also on my computer, I have a lot of yeah. stuff. And it's never really been laid down so that it's it's there and will yeah. always be there. Yeah. Uh, and having just read Bill White's book, um, Recovery Rising, where he talks about making sure we leave a legacy yeah. uh, so that other people, other, I mean, otherwise, you know, we just keep losing a lot of stuff. Yeah. So I'm now, um, I think a couple of weeks ago, I put together 40 blogs and put them into the database ready to load one a day. And this morning I, I put together, the last day I've put together 10 of my old background briefings now into yeah. the database. Yeah. Uh, there's 72 of those, which were wow. those educational columns I wrote for Drink and Drug News. Um, I've got a lot of other writings and things. And what I would like to do is get them onto the website. Um, yeah. That's only part of the problem. The then, of course, is getting more people to look at that. And that's a lot of work. It will take time. Yeah. Yeah. However, my, my philosophy is get it there. And what I want to do is to turn it into educational programs. So once I've got it there, then I can start yeah. to create that framework. Yeah. Um, so basically, that, that's what I do. I don't, I'm retired. I live off a poultry um, British uh, pension and my uh, generosity of my partner. Um, I like to think that I would spend a lot of time recreating. I go to the, the gym regularly. Yes, yeah. um, but I just find that I get tied back to the computer. I'm excited yeah, with yeah. what I'm, 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 I'm doing. And catching up with you again has been yeah. brilliant. You, you, and, go and to know these things are going on, you know. And also people that I met... And I never wrote anything with Stuart Honor, who set up the Basement Project, which is yeah. run by Michelle Foster, yeah. uh, David McCartney at Leap, yeah. uh, Noreen yeah. Oliver, who I did write a lot of stuff about Burton Addiction yeah. Center. But I'd like to go back and, and interview and Winford yeah. Ellis Owen in Cardiff to go yeah. back and see what these people are doing now and, and what's yeah. going on and, 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 and get that out there. Um, and, and, and also maybe the, the stories of people who weren't in treatment that we discussed on Saturday, a lot of people, yeah. not more people recover yeah. without treatment. Yeah. And I mean, recover from serious problems. So Absolutely. wouldn't it be lovely to find some of those people and, um, and get their stories. So that's what I'm doing at that front. The, the, the most important thing now in what I'm doing is, is keeping my fingers crossed that Britain gets itself sorted out over there so I can come back and see my children. Right. Um, uh, so, um, but yeah, I mean, 
no doubt I'll be writing more stories. And then also I keep in close touch with my Aboriginal friends who are running this healing program here because there is no doubt I have learned a lot and we won't talk here, but I've learned a lot from Aboriginal people in terms of Indigenous people, not just Aboriginal Australians, um, who have a different, more holistic view of healing, mm. where story is really key. Yeah. And so I've learned from them, and we both know, those people and myself know, that what we need to take is the best from both worlds, Indigenous and non-Indigenous. And, um, and also take things from our world that are not out there enough in our field. And we were talking about that on, on the other day, on things like asset-based community yeah. Yeah. development, which Cormac Russell and his team and UK yeah. and the Americans have been promoting. We need, and the trauma, I want to bring yeah. that, the tra I know so much more about trauma healing now. I want to bring that into the addiction yeah. recovery yeah. field. So well, I feel that one thing I've learned over the years, and I think, I hope it doesn't sound too big headed. I think I've got the ability to judge what is the good stuff out there. And when you see yeah. Bill White's Zimberg lecture, his major lecture, and the first part of 10 has only got 9,000 views after 10 years or whatever, we, we're not doing a good enough job in getting that stuff out there. Yeah. Bill yeah. White's stuff needs to be yeah. really mean, out there. Yeah. And in many ways, you know, I, I, I see you um, as significant in that, you know, I, I, it makes me laugh, really, because, you know, here I am talking to you. I, I feel like a kind of a nobody scout from somewhere talking to a premiership player. I turn it around the other way <laughs> because, because you've been there, you've taken the journey. But you're, you're, to me, you're in the league of the Bill Whites and, you know, David Bests and the John Kellys and all of those people. Yes, they're current and they're, they've continued on that journey, but you've, you, you, haven't, um, you haven't continued on the uh, addiction recovery journey in the way that you were doing before in the Wired In. But yeah. the stuff you've done with the Carol Up story and the the stuff in Australia around trauma and indigenous communities um, has been a really rich detour, you know, in many ways. And the fact that you're coming back and bringing that knowledge with you, I'm quite excited for us as a field of, of recovery to have your voice back in it. Um, and to think that, you know, because we, we, all, we, we all have our, different ways of working but I think one of the things that you're talking about is that kind of addiction recovery journey and then the other side of that the response to that the response seems to be ever-changing you know in terms of different approaches but they're not always in line with the evidence or the evidence is interpreted a certain way because of political expediency or because yeah. this is popular and that's not um the <clears throat> what you're talking about is kind of understanding people their journey the trauma um looking at people as assets that are not you know when when a when a treatment organization looks at a client they often look at them as their client 
or yes. they look at them as a an asset that they can monetize for their own purposes. So look at how good our program is. Look at how successful we are. And here's our evidence. And they wheel out the former addicts um, in recovery doing well. And they don't do that in the sense of um, let's celebrate these people. It's here, here is our evidence that our way works. Give us more money. So in many ways, someone like me in recovery becomes a monetized asset for a particular um, treatment service or a particular philosophy that might work as opposed to another one that's less effective. But what, what we as people in recovery really crave is just to be people and just to have the reins of our life back in our own hands and to, to be part of a community that helps and supports e each other and that improves the soil of society, you know, for everyone else, because what's the saying, you know, a rising tide raises all boats. And so if, if people like me can get help and then become the help for other people, um, the whole of society benefits. It's, I don't want to lock people in recovery into just addicts who need treatment or just criminals who need to be incarcerated. You know, we're just people. And I think your voice coming back and talking in the way that you have today adds to the humanity of the system you know so we 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 will just get hopefully just get treated as people who are on a journey um and yeah. and we can celebrate that journey and and that can be disseminated for others to learn what they can from that sounds a bit idealistic i know but um that's no but no let, let me let me just say something in relation to that i mean first of all thank you for your kind words um, yeah, no, and i think i probably have got a unique journey i'm not so sure anyone has taken this journey <laughs> that i've taken for neuroscience and, and then yeah but we haven't actually mentioned one thing during this talk which you've, we've alluded to but we've never actually mentioned it so it's a good way this yeah, is the time we need to say it recovery comes from the person Recovery is self-healing. Practitioners, they don't fix people. Yeah. They catalyze and support the natural process, processes of recovery. Yeah. So many practitioners I have met think they're the ones doing the work and they do exactly <laughs> what you say. You yeah. know, when we were really battling to get the idea of what recovery was really about, you know, when, when in my early days of Wyden, and then when we took Bill White's message and put it out there, um, finally they started to talk about the treatment agencies were all about, we're doing recovery. Yeah. They weren't doing anything different to what they were doing before. What they were doing was using the word to help them get money because they were worried they might that the NTA yeah. might suddenly decide to fund recovery. Yeah, yeah. It was all about the services. And, and there's this beautiful thing from between one of Bill White's papers that Roland Lamb, who was one of the leaders with Arthur Evans in yeah. changing the system in Philadelphia from the old system to recovery. And they did research along the way and they showed that the system and the people within it had all the characteristics of addicts. Blame, denial, grandiosity. Yeah. <laughs> and then when they finally start to celebrate the recovery, 
it's only to wheel them out to get more money. Yeah, yeah. Because now, I'm not saying, well, of course, not all treatment services are like that. But no. I saw a lot of that. Yeah. And I also, having communicated with a lot of, for example, the rehabs, I, I contacted them and said, these are the things we can do. We've got the secure internet-based system. Um, we can do relapse prevention. We do dum, blum, blum, blum. Yeah. These are the people uh, uh, who we're working with. We were doing it with FedApp. Simon yeah. Shepherd of the Federation yeah. Drug and Alcohol Professionals. Yeah. Um, if you all put in a little bit of money, we could build something special. Yeah. I may have got one of most two replies. Yeah. Nobody got back. Yeah. Out yeah. of courtesy, you might have. I would never have dreamt of not replying yeah. to someone. Yeah. So, you know, but we must never forget that you guys did the work, you know. Uh, and, you know. And your recovery, you know, it, it's. It's that's what it's about. And so we've got to celebrate that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I you know, I want to do more and more. You know, there, there's I think we're in a we're in an age that we've never been in before. You know, we, we all have these devices. Um, yeah, there is an infrastructure out there of um, free communications. I say free. I mean, it's clearly it's a tracking device that allows me to make phone calls, you know, but it, it you know, <laughs> That aside, once you embrace the fact that there is this um, technology out there that are, I certainly never had growing up. You know, when I grew up in a house, in a house that didn't even have a phone, um, my dad never had a car. Um, but now, you know, we spend a lot of money on communications, and we can't travel as much as we used to. And that electronic infrastructure has become even more important. Um, and there are free versions of everything out there. I mean, I think the only paid version of anything that I've got is this Zoom account, because I decided actually what I need is a professional Zoom account where I can record. Um, there's a couple of other bits that I think I need. But, you know, generally, there's I've got a free Facebook account, a free Instagram account, free social media, left, right and center. Um, and that information this, i think what we're doing this story this content you know which is the the modern parlance for you know original um information is just content is is going to grow i mean I, I think your what you talked about putting up on your blog and all those briefings it's just so rich you know i i, I don't think i'm going to be able to read them all in in my lifetime to read you and, Bill White and john kelly and david best you know it, it's it's amazing but we've got choice yeah if we have a richness we can choose which yeah absolutely and that means others can as well yeah how do we end this to uh, this particular episode give tell me if there's any parting comments you want to make before we hit the pause button and decide what to do next. So yeah, I think, I think there is. I was thinking of how to end the recovery stories book. And I thought that given the journey I've taken, if someone said to me, David, what were the three most important things you've learned on this journey? Yeah. From neuroscience, through recovery advocacy, through the online community, through sharing culture work and now yeah. to the indigenous what are those three things and these yeah. what they are number one these are not in any specific order yeah yeah number one strength of human spirit yeah 
Number two, the power of human connection. And the third is the healing impact of story. Yeah. And I think it all comes down to, in fact, what Wired In was right at the, the beginning. We saw it then. It's about empowerment and connection. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, yeah. And I noticed I was reading Judith Herman's book on um, trauma, and um, she talks about empowerment and connection. Yeah. And safety. You've got to have safety before yeah. those. But I think those are the three things that I've been left with. So, yeah. So people like you have shown such amazing human spirit. Yes, so, sorry, so amazing strength in your human spirit. You couldn't have done it without being connected. Mm. And your story, I'm saying yours, but any recovering yeah, yeah. person's story is very powerful for others because you're a role model. And someone who's further back in their journey sees things that you have done and mm. thinks, I'll try that. Yeah. And I, I remember that I've got this fantastic book by um, um, Bohart and Tolman for the American Psychological Society on self-healing. Yeah. And one of the things that practitioners need to do is to create uh, an environment of learning. Yeah. It is about people learning so many different and that's something we should follow up with in a yeah in yeah a, yeah because often the, the treatment world and certainly um some of the treatment approaches are, are not about learning they're about complying in, in many instances yeah. you know comply with the way we do things and then they just become good at complying within that context and the minute they're they're outside of that context um life becomes difficult because they have to make choices of their own so learning is definitely the way to go um, and i've just written down a note here i've just seen it this is what i saw at wakada and, and when i was writing a more detailed chapter of that later uh, recently I, I i went back to the self-healing book and they created an environment that was safe mm. facilitated learning and problem solving and meaning making to understand things around me which i may not know because i never had the opportunity because i've taken drugs when i was 12 years of age mm. so i can make yeah. a meaning of the world around me and yeah. start to learn things and i remember our stuff that we did in prisons and we can talk about this another time as well yeah. when we looked at the factors that facilitated recovery belonging socialization People had to learn to communicate because you can't belong without being able to communicate. Mm. And you, then you had to learn to trust and, be, and feel that you're being trusted. Mm. So that all these sort of elements that are there in a recovery community and a good treatment agency. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, okay. and obviously connection to others. Yeah. Uh, to me, that seems like a good place to hit the pause button. Um, Hour and a half. Wow. Yeah, I, I want to say thank you. Uh, this isn't the last oh. conversation we're going to have. Um, and even though you're in Western Australia and I'm here in South Oxfordshire, in Henley-on-Thames, in the south of England, it's not... Where, my, where my, one of my sons goes to college in Henley. Oh, right. Okay. I live in Reading. Yeah, okay. <laughs> 
if he needs someone to look out for him at any point, tell him he can knock on my door. <laughs> OK. 